0: Good morning. It's a delight for me to be able to open God's word with you this morning. Charles Blondin was a famous 19th century acrobat and stunt artist. He became famous in 1859 for walking a tightrope over Niagara Falls, the famous waterfall on the U.S.-Canadian border. After completing this first stunt, Blondin announced that he was going to do it again. But this time, he was, going to p- he was going to walk across the tightrope pushing a wheelbarrow, a person in a wheelbarrow, a pushcart. A newspaper reporter came to interview Blondin. And Blondin asked the reporter, do you think I can do this great feat? The reporter replied, I really believe you can. I think you're the greatest stunt artist of all time. Blondin said, you believe I can do it? Well, then you get in the push cart. The newspaper reporter never got in. You see, for the reporter, there was a disconnect between what he believed and what he did, between his faith and his actions. He believed Blondin could accomplish the feat. He'd already seen the man accomplish great feats but when it came to acting on that faith he hesitated at times we can be similar in our faith as christians we believe in god we trust in christ for salvation but if you're anything like me there are moments when there's a disconnect between what we believe and what we do or between what we believe and what we say The New Testament writer James saw a similar disconnect in the lives of Christians. And he writes in the letter of James to address our inconsistency as Christians. James saw that at times Christians could confess faith in God and then go on to do things or say things that were completely godless. Living like God doesn't exist is like a practical atheism. We are living such practical atheism when we acknowledge God's existence with our lips, but God doesn't enter into every area of our lives as he intends. It is such hypocrisy that James addresses in our passage this morning. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of James, the New Testament letter of James to James, chapter four, verses 11 to 17. Quickly, for context, the letter of James was written by the brother of Jesus the younger son of Joseph and Mary, who became a leader in the early church and a pastor of the church of Jerusalem. We read in the book of Acts that persecution came upon the Jerusalem church and many of these early Christians were scattered out of Jerusalem into the surrounding areas outside of Jerusalem. And James addresses these Christians as their former pastor. And he writes to encourage them to persevere through these trials. He tells them to resist temptation, and he calls them to live lives that in every way would honor God. He's already spent considerable time in this letter addressing the subject of our speech, and he returns to the subject again here in chapters 4 and 5. So skim the book with me really quickly as we review his teaching on words so far. Look at chapter 1. He begins talking about our words in verse 13 telling us not to blame God for our temptations. When trials come into our lives, temptations come alongside them, and James says, do not blame God for your temptations, but trust him that he has good intentions for bringing these difficulties into our lives. He tells them in verse 19 of chapter 1 that we should be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, realizing that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And then in verse 26 of chapter 1, he says that true religion includes getting a hold on our tongue. In chapter 2, he calls Christians in verse 12 to speak and act as those who will be judged under the law of liberty, an echo of Jesus' words in the book of Matthew, that every idle word that men shall speak, we will give an account thereof on the day of judgment. Chapter 3 is his most extended dialogue about words, the famous passage on the tongue. He warns Christians of the dangers of our words, comparing our words to fire that destroys, and emphasizing that our tongues are impossible to control or tame on our our own strength. He also, in chapter 3, calls out Christians for how double-tongued we can be. In one moment, blessing God, and the next moment, cursing God people that have been made in the image of God. And then here in our own chapter, at the beginning of chapter four, he addresses the fights that too often characterize Christians, fighting among ourselves. And he asks the question, where do these fights come from? Are they result of things out of us, our circumstances, or other people? No, James says, it's the result of what's inside of us, our evil desires. And this is where our passage picks up, starting in chapter four, verse 11. And our main point is, This morning from this passage is this, if you're taking notes. This is the main point. Judgmental words or boastful words reveal a heart that has forgotten God. Judgmental words or boastful words reveal a heart that has forgotten God. And we'll have two points this morning. Judgmental words, verses 11 and 12, and boastful words. Verses 13 to 17. And I pray this morning that we would have eyes to see any hypocrisy that exists in our own lives, in our words, and in our hearts. But I hope that more than that, we will know not only the conviction of sin, but also the hope that is found only in Jesus Christ, the word of God made man who alone can cleanse us from our unclean lips, but more importantly can cleanse our unclean hearts. Let's begin with point number one, judgmental words. And as we begin, let's start reading in James 4, verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? I'm told that the most famous Bible verse in the world today is Matthew 7, verse 1. Do not judge others or you too will be judged. Judge not. This phrase, don't judge me, in many ways summarizes the perspective of our day. We don't want anyone to judge us. And if we're honest at times, we don't even believe God should have the right to judge us. And yet at the same time, the irony is we can be so quick to pass judgment on others. We're quick to pick it up when others are judging us, but yet we're so quick to do the same to others. But the reality is we hold others to standards that we ourselves cannot meet. What kind of speech does James have in mind here when he forbids evil speech? Well, it's criticizing others as the CSB translation has it. Speaking against others with evil intent. Tearing them down. This would include all manner of critical speech with evil intent, including gossip. Which is talking behind another's back to tear them down or to make yourself look better. It includes slander talking about someone to discredit them or to ruin their reputation. James tells, tells us that when we speak in this way against a fellow Christian, we put ourselves in the place of a judge, above the law. And to do so is to judge the law, to criticize the law itself. Very often what's happening when we speak evil in such a way is what we're doing is comparing ourselves with others. The Apostle Paul talks about such comparing in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He talks about these false teachers, these super apostles who were always fighting uh, with Paul and with other religious leaders to make themselves look better. And he says that they were always comparing themselves with themselves and judging themselves by themselves. And in doing this, he says they were not wise. Very often when we Criticize others, this is what we're doing. We're like siblings vying for the attention of our parents, trying to make ourselves look better than the other in order to to, to be accepted by God. Let me encourage you, Christian, if you're tempted to this sin on a regular basis, is there something in your heart that feels insecure about your standing before God? If you are a Christian, if you've had your sins forgiven, if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, you are a child of God. And there is nothing that you can do to make yourself more accepted in God's sight than what Christ has already done for you on the cross. Let me encourage you, Christian, to find your confidence in Christ, not in how you think you appear in comparison with others. Now, there's a difference between judgmentalism which this passage is talking about, and the kind of godly judgment (coughs) that Christians at times are called to do. In judgmentalism, we take upon ourselves a role reserved for God alone, but God does call his people at times to make judgments. We are called as Christians at times to correct one another, to rebuke one another, to exhort one another, to speak the truth in love and and even to say hard things at times to one another. As a church, at times, we have to exercise church discipline. And the word that is used for such church discipline is the word to judge. In 1 Corinthians 5, we see the church called to discipline a, a man who was involved in sexual immorality. And he says, it is right for you, at the end of that chapter, to judge those inside the church. Not to be judgmental and to put yourself in the place of God, but to speak truth about the the manner of a a person's life and to call sin, sin. In the next chapter, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul even addresses Christians who were dragging each other into courts, asking secular judges to judge between them these lawsuits were happening inside the church. And Paul says, is there no one among you who can judge between Christians in such matters? So as we consider the difference between such judgmental speech, which is wrong, and a proper judgment, which is right, how do we know the difference? Well, let me give you six practical points as you consider whether your speech is good and right, Or evil and judgmental. Here are six practical points to consider. Number one, as you think of the possibility of speaking truth to another believer, number one, consider yourself first. Consider yourself first. Take the log out of your own eye first, as Matthew 7 puts it. That is, when we go and speak truth to a a brother or sister who we see is in sin, realize that we are sinners too. And realize that we must be sure that when we come to them, we're not coming as God judging them, but as a fellow brother or sister in Christ calling each other to together be living lives that honor God. We're to come alongside them as fellow Christians, not as God himself, as fellow citizens in God's kingdom concerned about each other's holiness. Number two, consider your motivation. Consider your motivation. Perhaps the easiest way to recognize judgmental words is to look at the heart and the attitude behind it. Ask yourself, am I acting and speaking with love in my heart? Or is there hatred hiding there? Am I seeking my brother's good or his downfall? And remember that speaking the truth in love means we consider both what we say as well as how we say it. Truth can be used as a weapon only to hurt. But while the truth in love may wound, we should be like a surgeon seeking to wound in order to heal. The motivation and the goal is to heal, to encourage, and to build up. A third practical point, be open in your speech. Be open in your speech. That is, don't say anything about someone behind their back that you wouldn't say to their face. And in the same way that you say it, away from their presence. For some of us, we find it easier to backbite, to speak evilly about someone behind their back, and this is a good rule for us. Others of us are more fierce and have no problem attacking people to their face. The fact that you are comfortable saying mean things to someone's face doesn't give you the right to say mean things. We're all tempted in different ways, but let me encourage you to be open in your speech. A fourth practical point, desire your brothers' and sisters' holiness. Desire your brothers' and sisters' holiness. Do not fear being judgmental to the point that you never raise that awkward conversation. We are called at times to lovingly rebuke or correct our fellow Christians, and calling sin, sin is not judgmental. It's actually being faithful. We're called to take God's side against sin, against our own sin, and even against the sin of our brothers or sisters. James, in the very next chapter at the end of the book, James 5, 19 and 20, will go on to say, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It's a wonderful promise for those of us who pursue others who are in sin. A a fifth practical point. Make Ephesians 4 your roadmap for speech. Make Ephesians 4 your roadmap for speech. This passage is clear about what not to do with our words. So if you're wondering what to do with your words, read Ephesians 4. We're not to criticize, but instead, what should our words look like? Well, Ephesians 4.15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. We must speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.25, put away falsehood and let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So let's speak words that are true. Ephesians 4.29, do not let corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Ephesians 4.31, and thirty-two. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. A, a simple way of explaining the Ephesians 4 roadmap is our words should look like the words of our God, the words of our Savior Jesus. As those made in his image and those who are Christians, we can be imitating Christ by the way that we speak to one another. And lastly, a sixth practical point, be quick both to seek and to offer forgiveness. Be quick to seek and to offer forgiveness. If James is clear about one thing in in the book about our speech, it's that we will sin against one another with our words. That's a reality. We must acknowledge that our words have power. Realizing that we can hurt another person more deeply with just a handful of words than we may do with all of our physical power. If you know that you've hurt someone with your words, let me encourage you. Pursue them, ask for their forgiveness. Don't go on pretending that you've done nothing wrong, but humble yourself and and seek that reconciliation. And when someone asks for your forgiveness, Remember all that God has forgiven you in Christ and forgive them. Those in authority among us have unusual power with our words. I want to make a few application points in terms of certain relationships that we have and the way that our words can affect one another. Let me speak to you for a moment, husbands. And let me ask you this morning how do you speak? with your wife how are your words and in your conversation with your wife do you use your words to encourage her and to build her up or only to criticize and tear her down are your words full of love and encouragement and kindness as God speaks to us and as Christ speaks to his church or are they full of of evil I wonder, husbands, how do you speak about your wife when she's not around, when you're with your coworkers or your friends? Do you speak about her in such a way that shows that you give her honor? Or are you critical of her? Wives, the Bible is clear that wives are under the authority of their husbands, but yet as the closest relationship to your husband, your words have more weight than you may realize. I wonder, wives, how do you speak to your husband? Do you encourage him and build him up in his leadership? Are you supportive of him, showing him love by the way that you speak with him? Or are your words more full of criticisms and nitpicking? Do your words give him confidence to lead? And even to lead after he's made mistakes in the past? Or do you speak in such a way that makes him afraid to take steps of leadership? Because of his past mistakes. I wonder, wives, how do you speak about your husband when he's not there, when he's not with you, when you're around your friends or family members? Do you speak about your husband in ways that would build him up and show that you treat him with honor and respect? Dads and moms, dads and moms, how do you speak with your children? You know, the, the words of parents to their children have maybe more weight than any other human words can have in this world. I know for those of us who have grown up in homes, we'll all have memories of things that our parents have said, scars that have been left behind. I wonder, dads and moms, how do you speak with your children? Do you speak words of truth from God's word to teach them and to train them? Do you speak in such a way that imitates Christ and the way that he leads and guides his his flock, and his church. I know that as parents, we have a responsibility at times to correct and to discipline our children, and that's important. But are your words more full of criticism, pointing out your children's mistakes and failings, or just as full of encouragement and the kinds of words that would give them freedom to grow and to be, and to be growing as human beings? to look more and more like Christ. And let me encourage you, parents, if you've sinned against your children, if you have spoken to your children in such a way that has been sinful, are you willing to humble yourself and to ask them for forgiveness? I think as parents, at times, we think it's our job to model perfection. Do you know that it's not? While we are to be examples to our children, we're actually to be modeling repentance to our children. And that means being willing to go to them and to say, son or daughter, daddy was was wrong. I shouldn't have spoken to you in that way. Please forgive me. It's perhaps the hardest thing that we may have to do as parents. But it is the best thing. And I think you'll find that your children will be quick to offer forgiveness and quick to learn from that example. When we criticize our brothers and sisters in the church, We are rejecting God's law and deciding that we can judge others based on our standards. And doing this, James says, is criticizing the law itself. Do you see that when we criticize others, that we in fact desire to be in the place of God, to be God? We want to be like Adam and Eve in the garden, putting ourselves on God's throne, making the rules, creating the standards, being the one to declare what is right and wrong. When we speak evil of another, we are with our words making godlike declarations about what that person is and what they deserve, condemning them in our court. My children like to climb into my office chair at home and pretend to be daddy. Such pretending is cute and comical for children. Jack loves to climb up in my chair and bang away at my keyboard and say, Look, I'm a pastor. It's cute for children. But do you realize what this passage is saying? When we speak evil of others, we are literally climbing up into God's seat, into his chair, taking the seat of God himself as judge. Not only could we never step into God's shoes or fill out his chair, we have no business ever trying. Who are we to take such a position? James tells us, Christian, step down from your high seat. You are no judge. You are not God. Only one can take that position. Look at verse 12. How many lawgivers and judges are there? There is only one. And what qualifies him to be the lawgiver and the judge? His power to save and to destroy. Do you have this power, Christian? So who are we to judge each other? Answer, nobody. We are nobody to judge each other. So do not take, seek to take others into your hands. The judge is coming soon. Don't let him find you in his seat. He won't be amused. The Bible tells us that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Imagine how, for Satan, getting Christians to focus on each other, tearing each other down, is such a tactical advantage. It's a, a two-for-one sale. If, you can, if he can get Christians focused on tearing each other down, he doesn't have to do his job. And he distracts them from actually doing the thing that they are here on earth to do. Their mission of proclaiming the gospel and living holy lives that imitate Christ. Satan himself is the one who accuses the brethren. Christian, don't do his work for him. The the wonderful thing about this passage is it reminds us of the one who, for whom alone it was right to judge, Jesus Christ, the one for whom alone it was right to judge, to condemn, he didn't do it. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, didn't come to condemn the world though it would have been right for him to do it. He could have come and destroyed all of humanity and been justified in doing it. But what did he do instead? Did he come to condemn the world? No, he left his throne. He stepped down and came to earth. He left his judgment seat and came to actually experience the judgment that his people deserved. He came to earth in kindness. He came to show us the way of mercy. He humbled himself in taking on our humanity. And he humbled himself in taking on our judgment on the cross. And he did this so that we could relate to God no longer as judge, but as a father. You remember how Christ went to the cross and how he spoke to his father, even about those that were killing him? What did he say about those that were crucifying him, nailing him to that tree? Did he say, Father, condemn them for they deserve it? No, he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Brothers and sisters, look at Jesus Christ. Look at at the one for whom it was right to judge and to condemn. And look at his example. What did he do? He showed mercy and kindness and he actually took upon himself the judgment that they deserved if you're a Christian if you have trusted in Christ for your salvation Christ is now your example and how you should be living if you've believed in this gospel message and trusted in Christ follow your savior in the way of mercy and look at one another your brothers and sisters in Christ with such mercy and kindness Not with judgment, remembering that mercy triumphs over judgment. That's point number one, judgmental words. Point number two, boastful words. Point number two, boastful words from verses 13 to 17. Let's pick up reading in verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? James continues with the theme of our speech, but he turns now to the subject of boastful words. As we can be godless with judgmental language, putting ourselves in the place of God condemning others, in a similar way we can be godless with the way that we speak of the future and the way that we plan. In making declarative assertions about the future, we're actually, in a similar way, putting ourselves in the place of God assuming that we can be like God, declaring the end from the the beginning. But such declarations does two things, according to this text. Number one, it forgets that we don't know the future. It forgets that we don't know the future. Do you see that in verse 14? You don't know what tomorrow will bring. Only God knows that. And in fact, for all we know, today may be our last day on earth. God may bring us home or Christ may return before the end of this sermon, before the end of this sentence. We cannot see the future. And to speak as if we do is to put ourselves in the place of God. But also such declarations about the future does a second thing. It forgets who we are as God's creatures. It forgets who we are as God's creatures. James is reminding us that we are always God's creation. We were created by him. And we are completely dependent on him for life and for breath. God created us weak so that we would delight in relying on him for strength, for direction, and for purpose. So what is James' solution to such boastful speech about the future? Look at verse 15. Lord willing. Lord willing. This is why Christians say, Lord willing. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live, we will have life, and do this or that. Some jobs in this world are more dependent on God than others, or at least appear to be more dependent on God than others. I grew up the son of a pastor who had grown up as the son of a dairy farmer. And as someone who grew up with a farming background, my dad wanted us as kids to experience something of the farm life that he had. And so he had us as little kids go and work for a farmer in our church growing up. The farmer was a Christian, and as someone completely dependent on rain and sun, he prayed a lot in his work. I remember my first job out of university was waiting tables as a server in a restaurant. And my paycheck didn't amount to much. Um, All of my regular pay was through the tips and the gratuities that I received from from the, the people I was serving. Now, the interesting thing about that job was I prayed a lot about my provision when I was a waiter. I remember literally at times praying over every single table When a bill was due and I didn't have it, I would literally pray before I would go greet the table Lord, let them be generous. (laughs) Lord, provide for my needs with this table. Soon after that, I got a job with a steady paycheck. And all of a sudden, I had a different relationship with my understanding of my provision. I stopped praying that God would provide for my needs and I began planning. I had a spreadsheet. I could start planning out how much I could save. And I began to believe that my provision was in my own hands. We can do that, can't we? We can forget that our provision comes from God. We can believe that we have it in our own strength and that we will get whatever it is that we plan for. But this passage is telling us. No, God is the one who provides for our needs and we must rely on him for everything that we have, our life, our breath, our strength, and realize all of that comes from him. And even as we plan, keep in mind that he is sovereign over all of that. The Lord plans, uh, A man plans his steps, but God actually, actually makes his path straight. So how do we respond to a text like this? How do we think about our planning in light of a text like this? Do we stop planning altogether? Do we sit at home and do nothing? No. We should do what James says here, account for God in our speech and in our plans. Allow God to enter into our planning. We should apply Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, those verses that so many of us learned as children. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. In the New Testament, we have several passages that talk about different extremes that we can tend to as Christians. In the Thessalonian epistles, we had some who who heard about the imminent return of Christ, that Christ could return at any time, and they decided, well, if Christ could return at any time, and is going to happen soon I'm going to quit my job and wait for Christ to return and seem very spiritual to those around me and Paul actually forbids such idleness and laziness because what these Christians were doing were saying I'm not going to go to work but other Christians should to provide for my needs and Paul says if someone if an able-bodied man refuses to work don't feed him he must actually feel those hunger pangs to get him off of the couch and actually out there working to provide for his own needs and so that he can be generous to others. In 1 Timothy 5, he even goes on to say strongly that an able-bodied man who refuses to work and provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. So, being aware that we're here in Dubai, that we're here in the UAE, and that many of us have made such declarations when we moved here as expats, I wonder how you're thinking about this passage. All of us have moved here. We have made a declaration similar to this. I am going to move to Dubai, and I'm going to live there for a year or two or three, and I'm going to make money, I'm going to build my career, I'm going to provide for my family. As we consider a passage like this, for all of us as expats in a city like Dubai, where does James leave all of us? Have we all acted pridefully in moving here? Should we all pack our bags and go back home in humility? Well, I don't know. I believe that we all have to consider the possibility that some of us may have moved here out of arrogance. We must consider that. So how should we think about the future and speak of it as Christians? What is it that God is calling us to do with this passage? Well, we must ask the question, is God showing up in our thoughts, in our words, and in our plans? And we must begin to think through how should we be making decisions about the future in ways that honor God. So I want to ask this morning, does God and his priorities enter into your decision-making, Christian? As we think about this, realize that we naturally want to make decisions independent of God. So often, at best, we want to make a decision and only come to God for a rubber stamp or a final approval. So, how do we make decisions as Christians in ways that would honor Him? Well, let me give you another list of six. Some six practical points in considering decision making as Christians. Six practical points for considering our decision making as Christians. Number one, consider God's priorities. Number one, consider God's priorities. As you consider making decisions for the future, don't just consider what your priorities are, your personal priorities, your family's priorities, your parents' priorities, or your culture's priorities. Your decision-making must be driven by God's priorities from Scripture. You should be asking yourself, what is God's will for my life expressed in the Bible? Not in terms of a certain job or maybe even a certain city that you would live in but in terms of what he's calling you to do as a Christian. Number two, a second practical point. Seek counsel. Seek counsel. God has given you elders. He's given you a pastor. And this is what elders are for, to help lead and guide you, even in your decision-making. You know, he's even given you wise Christians here in this church. Talk to others before you make drastic life choices and seek counsel. Elders love to sit with their people, opening up God's word and helping them think through how to make decisions in ways that would honor him. This will help you in considering God's priorities. As as Proverbs says, in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. A third practical point. Weigh all of your responsibilities. Weigh and balance all of your responsibilities. That is, as a Christian, you have many responsibilities. And you must take them all into account as you make decisions. So often as we make decisions, we'll have one responsibility that seems to be the the only important one. And so often it's money, isn't it? We think, well, as long as I can be making money and providing... I can can set aside all of my other responsibilities. So this means for you, Christian, if you're married, you must consider your responsibility as a wife or as a husband. You cannot set aside your marriage relationship in order to make money. This means, Christian, that if you're a parent of young children, you cannot set aside your responsibility as a father or as a mother simply to make money, you must take into account that calling that God has given you to love and to care for and to treasure and to train up those children. Now, we must take the responsibility seriously of providing as parents, as husbands or wives. That is perhaps one of our responsibilities, but not the only one. And it may mean that we have to Perhaps, in order to keep all of our responsibilities, take a job that pays less, in order to be a faithful husband or wife, and in order to be a faithful parent. Uh, a fourth practical point in terms of decision-making, pray. We encourage you, Christian, pray. Pray before you make the decision. Pray with other Christians. Pray as you make the decision, and pray after you make the decision. Pray. Pray. Prayer is such a wonderful way to draw near to God and to remind ourselves that we are dependent on Him and to seek His guidance. As James 1, 5 puts it, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally who ask Him for wisdom. Pray and ask for wisdom as you make decisions. A a fifth practical point. Follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now this is an interesting point to make. And I'm going to give you a a really quick, similar statement and try to connect it. Uh, Another way of saying this may be, follow your conscience. Follow your conscience. The interesting thing about our conscience is we each have one. They are our internal compass, our sense of what is right and wrong. And we all have a conscience That tells us what is right and wrong. Now, the interesting thing about um, about our conscience is our conscience can be affected for good or for evil. So the New Testament spends a bit of time talking about the reality that we can affect our conscience and make it dull by living in ways that are sinful. Paul talks about those who've had their consciences seared with a, a hot iron and they become dull, lifeless. We're no longer able to tell the difference between what is right and wrong. But our conscience can actually be affected for good as the Holy Spirit teaches us, as God's word comes into our hearts and minds. And as our consciences are growing, the most important thing is that we're doing things that are in line with our conscience. But some of us can have a dulled and dead conscience, even as Christians. And we can actually be more sensitive to our flesh than we are to even the Holy Spirit. So let me encourage you to speak to others about the things that you're thinking of doing so that they can help you weigh whether this is good and right or not. But let me encourage you Christians, if you know the right thing to do, do it as verse 17 puts it. For him who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let me encourage you to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, even if it's hard and even if it goes against what culture or what your family is telling you to do, do what is right and trust God with the rest. And number six, a sixth practical point, consider your spiritual health. Consider your spiritual health. So often we're more concerned with our physical wealth than our spiritual health. I don't know about you, but very often my mindset had been, when it came to life decisions, I need to find a job. I would find the job, I need to find a house as close to that job as I can afford. And then I'll look around and see if there's any churches nearby. What if we as Christians did it the other way around? What if we built our lives in a place where we knew there was going to be a good and a healthy church? And we were willing to live maybe even far away from family, physical family, In order to be growing with a a spiritual family that is good and lively what if we were willing to take a job that didn't pay quite as much and even were willing to sacrifice some of that physical wealth in order to be spiritually healthy i think this is what god calls us to do as christians to have the kinds of priorities that don't make sense in the eyes of the world let me encourage you parents if you have teenagers that are looking at universities To not just look into the best university that your student could get into, but perhaps to look at university cities where you know there's going to be good churches, so that they not only get a good education, but that they can grow in their faith as well. As you consider these things, let me encourage you Christians to to speak to your elders if you have questions or concerns or if there are things weighing on your heart. Let me encourage you Christians, even if we've failed in the past, in the way that we've made decisions, there is forgiveness in Christ and there is hope for correction and hope for change. Even in thinking and talking about the future, Christ is our example. Do you remember when he was tempted by Satan? Satan offered him the kingdoms of the world. Seems like what Satan was doing was saying, Look, Jesus, I will give you this world. You don't need to go to the cross. I'll give it to you. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. What did Jesus do? Did he take his future into his own hands? Did he reject the way of the cross in order to have the kingdoms of this world without the way of suffering? No, what did Jesus do? He surrendered himself to the will of his Father. As he went to the cross, he there in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he was weeping and sweating drops of blood, what did he cry out? I want to do it my way? No, he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is our example. As he looked to the future, he didn't do things according to his own plans or his own mindset, but he entrusted himself and his future to God. We should follow in his footsteps as we think and consider the future, not boastfully declaring what we're going to do, but entrusting ourselves to our God. I know a passage like this is hard for all of us to hear. Any passage in the Bible about our words is going to be convicting. It's convicting for me as I preach. So what is the solution? Well, our words, remember, are like a thermometer. You know, a thermometer doesn't change the temperature. It tells us what the temperature is. If you put a thermometer in your oven or outside in the Dubai heat, that thermometer doesn't change the temperature. It tells us about the temperature. In the same way, our, our words work that way. Our words don't make us evil. They reveal the evilness that is in our hearts. As Jesus put it, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So realize there are no easy solutions to the problem of our words. The solution isn't to stop our mouths, to decide to become mute, but to have our hearts made new. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you're considering the way that you speak, realize you cannot change yourself. Only God can do this work. Only God can cleanse your heart and make it new. And if you're here and you are a Christian, but yet you're still struggling with these sins, let me encourage you, you cannot do this, Christian, in your own strength. You must rest in the power of the Holy Spirit to work with you in fighting sin and in pursuing holiness. Only a complete transformation will do. We need God who alone is able to save us. And we must always look to Christ, the one who came, though he was the judge and didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And we must follow Christ, who though he was God, he humbled himself and trusted in the will of his father. James calls us to repent of godless living, such practical atheism, but there is a fascinating thing that can happen in our lives. Rather than being godless in the way that we speak, we can actually become godlike with our speech. That is, as those created in the image of God, we have an opportunity with our words to reflect something of what God is like by the way that we speak. As Peter puts it in 1 Peter 4, let him who speaks speak as if he's speaking the very words of God. You know, we have an opportunity as Christians to show something of what God is like by the way that we speak to one another. Let us together as Covenant Hope Church speak in such a way to one another and to the watching world that would show them something and smell something of the aroma of Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but that you are a speaking God. Thank you that you have come and did did not speak words of judgment, but you spoke words of grace and mercy, that you spoke peace. And we thank you that in this message of the gospel, we can be so completely changed from rebels to actually members of your family. And that we have the opportunity now not Not to speak words that tear down and criticize, but words that draw unbelievers to Christ and words that build up each other in Christ. We pray that we would be characterized and marked by words that sound like your Savior, Jesus Christ, more and more with each passing day until that day when we see Christ face to face and are made like him when we see him as he is. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.